Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Later, our investigative reporter Miranda Combs will join us and she'll talk about some of what she's been working on and what she has planned. Miranda will be with us later. But first, the new point man for higher education in Kentucky is a native of the state with a compelling story. He also has some major goals for getting more Kentuckians educated and trained for the jobs out there. Dr. Aaron Thompson takes the job at a time when the cost of college is a barrier for many and there are other obstacles. Dr. Thompson is an experienced administrator, is also a sociologist who's spoken around the country on achievement, leadership and diversity. Thompson was chosen last month to head the Council on Post-Secondary Education, which oversees the state's colleges and universities. He comes to the post after a decade of cuts to public higher education here in the Commonwealth. Dr. Thompson joining us this morning and thanks for coming. Appreciate Thank it. I guess it's Mr. President now as well, right? <laughs> well, you can call me anything you like. <laughs> All right. Well, congratulations on, on your new assignment. I know it, uh, it really is something that uh, you are embracing. Your own story, uh, very inspiring, uh, having taken advantage of the educational opportunities that were available at the time. Just give us a little bit of your background. Sure. I'm from Clay County, Kentucky. My father was a coal miner. Mother was a housewife mother. Uh, we were sharecroppers. And when I say poor, we were poor. You know, we had a, I was born in a little small log cabin with uh, eight siblings in that little cabin with my mother and father. And the idea that uh, we had an opportunity, if you will, was always told to us by mom and dad even though they had no idea what college meant. You know, they did tell us that the value of education. Father was illiterate. He didn't know what education was from a pure sense of what we think about college as. And mom had an eighth grade education, but they taught me the value of education. The idea that if I was ever going to do something more than them, I would have to get more education. And so that's the background where I'm from. I mean, it's uh, very much a core of my cultural upbringing, but it's very much a core of my emotional intelligence about education. When you got to college, you went to EKU. Right? I did. Uh, did you, yeah. uh, uh, at that time, did you feel up to the task, or is that a, uh, also something that is uh, difficult to overcome in terms of getting the confidence to, to do college work? Well, yeah, <clears throat> that's a very good question. I don't even know if anyone's ever asked me that, uh, actually. I, I felt up to the task. I, I felt that even if I didn't have the knowledge, <clears throat> I had the ability to get the knowledge. And that is truly, I think, the essence of good knowledge is that you have the belief that you can continuously improve. Did I have issues when I went to college as far as math and so on? Yeah, but I got it. So, you know, I, I did feel up to the task. When you think of your own story, do you feel that the, the same doors are uh, as wide open for students today as, as they were for you? you know, as someone who studies culture and environments and so on, I, I will tell you, no, I think it's, it's different. I want to talk about it from two ends. I mean, are there opportunities out there more than when I was in school? Absolutely. I mean, the net price of college is very low, you can go, you got a lot more federal assistance and state assistance to go, a lot more campus assistance to go. But the difference is that there's so many, now generations of, uh, of drug uh, overdoses and overuse in eastern and southeastern Kentucky or in many of our inner cities and there's this sense that in fact the culture 
is more of that than in many cases a culture of hope. So what my argument is that although there's more physical opportunities, there may not be as many emotional opportunities or thoughts. How do you encourage students who are out there who may be in those difficult circumstances to keep their eye on, on the goal of uh, uh, achieving a, a higher level, a higher skill set. You know, interesting because I think in many cases students have no idea of their path uh, and have no idea where their path can take them to uh, good employment. So I think there's two or three pieces I would argue here. One is we have to really uh, stretch the value of the value proposition, why education is important, period. But we also have to align them in a pathway and a pipeline to let them think there's many ways you can get to where you want to go with sustainable employment. It doesn't have to be a four-year college degree. It could be a credential, but it has to be something that allows them to know that if they stay on this successful path uh, through elementary, middle, high school, that they have a great chance to get where they need to go. We're offering a lot more dual credit opportunities that we need to align with that, as a matter of fact. Let's talk about uh, where Kentucky is in, in in higher education. Obviously, uh, there is some attempt to uh, match the workforce, mm -hmm. uh, the, the jobs that are open to what is being taught in the universities. There are some who say, you know, get that liberal arts degree and you can handle anything. Where do you come down on that? Well, I mean, it's a both and for me, not an either or. Um, for an example, we do have a dearth. Uh, I mean, I'll give you some statistics that yeah. just happened to have in front of me. Uh, we, 2017, we ranked 43 in the nation for people ready to go to work. So we have a long way to go. But I will also tell you, though, looking at the numbers, we uh, in the last 10 years, we've increased uh, our enrollment by 56% in our public universities, 35% at KCTCS. We're giving out more degrees than ever. We're giving out more undergraduate degrees to our low income and kids of color. This is where I come down, Bill. We've, uh, yeah, go ahead. We've had some tough budget years. Uh, right. The need to address the, uh, the pension crisis has uh, taken up a lot of money, money that many say should have been allocated before but wasn't. But Kentucky has continuously, after the recession of 2008, cut its commitment to higher education for a decade solid. Some of the regional universities especially have, uh, talked, have had to cut uh, programs and personnel. Uh, is that something that uh, you're hoping to address? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I will tell you, I, I know the competing circumstances why higher ed has been cut, the pensions, Medicaid, and so on. There's a lot of issues that the legislature and the governor has to deal with, and I fully understand that that's the case. Higher ed, though, has taken a big brunt of those cuts to make some of those things happen. And we still are deep uh, in, in, in issues along those lines. But I will tell you, higher education is the solution to a lot of those issues. And, the, and we've been cut so much in higher education, we are in the bone. We're not no fat anymore to cut. So if we're going to actually get to a point of where we're economically viable in the state, we're going to have to get more people educated with a credential or some other degree to make that happen. So my argument is let's start funding the solution. Because people who have degrees typically earn more and pay more taxes, so it might be counterintuitive to continuously make those cuts, huh? 
It, it, absolutely. Not only that, they have a greater chance of not being unemployed. I mean, we've seen that in research over the last many years. And we also know that there is an opportunity for their kids even to be very much a part of the viable workforce because the more education you get, the more it's generational. Some university presidents have been very outspoken about their concerns about this performance-based funding formula that has been set out without additional money being allocated. Uh, other states that uh, set those kind of expectations uh, also put forth uh, more uh, money. Uh, is that a concern? Uh, yes. I want to first of all tell you that uh, we in higher education, we don't have a problem with accountability. I think the metrics, and I think Senator Givens and, and the group that helped put this together really, I think, targeted the right metrics for us to be successful, focusing on STEM, low-income, students of color, more degree attainment, and so on. So I, we're okay with that accountability, but what we know is that without taking uh, money from, if we take money from each other, none of us can be very successful. So we're going to have to figure out how to put more money in that for it to be successful. So the argument isn't whether or not it's a good model, I argue it's a very good model. Uh, but we have to get money in there to make that model truly live out what the usefulness of it could be. Now, some of the regionals have particularly had uh, had concerns about the, about the formula funding. Right, especially some of the smaller ones. Yes. The cost of college. Uh, to what extent uh, is it a barrier to those who want to attend? You've said there are there are grants, there's money, there are mm -hmm. scholarships and so forth available out there. But uh, is that uh, right now uh, the barrier that keeps uh, many kids from going? Well, I, I don't think physically it is as much as it is mentally. And what I mean by that, there's, there's a perception that it's not affordable. And I think we have to do a better job being transparent what the net cost of college is and how students can really pay for it. We're going to have to be more transparent uh, to the fact that if you borrow money, you need to get that credential and that way it becomes an investment and not a debt around your neck. So affordability, though, is becoming an issue for me physically, too, because the lower income you are, and I know there's an opportunity for you to get more money, but you also have to live. There, I mean, there's living expenses. In many cases, there's many of these folks that may have family they are assisting. So yes, we have to focus on affordability. We have to look at it now as uh, an item that not only talks about access to college, but success while they're in college. Many of our kids drop out. Many of our adult students drop out because they don't have enough money to take them through. And Dr. Thompson, many are, are also arriving at uh, trying to make a, a value judgment on how much debt they want to carry when they get out of college. I mean, if, they, if they're forty or fifty thousand dollars in debt, uh, you know, that's a lot to be starting life out. It is. That's why we need to do better financial counseling, I think. More than just talking about it, we're going to have to give models where they can see exactly what the outcomes are if they go down this path. So yes, if we have students that are uh, not graduating with that kind of debt, we have really a big problem. If we have students that graduate with that big debt, but they don't have sustainable employment, that's a big problem. If we have students that graduate with that debt that has have very good employment, then it's far less of a problem. So we're going to have to think about mitigating student debt, true enough, 
but we're also going to have to think about how to make it more of an investment versus a barrier for their overall long-term success. Dr. Aaron Thompson is with us. He's the president of the Council on Post-Secondary Education, overseeing the state's colleges and universities. More questions for him, including uh, when is it that you, uh, you intervene and convince uh, students that, uh, that they can go on? We're back with that and more on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We're glad you're with us today, and we are also glad that Dr. Aaron Thompson has uh, gotten a moment to join us because he is very busy as head of the Council on Post-Secondary Education. And uh, you plan to, uh, to be visible, to be out there, to visit uh, these uh, colleges and universities and even attend some of their uh, governing body meetings, as I understand it. Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I leave here, I'm going to our community college uh, systems uh, uh, board meeting. Yes, I do. Over the next year, I'll do a listening tour around the state. I want to hear from the citizens of the state or those regions that will tell me what they think are the barriers to uh, success, uh, especially around colleges. And I also want to go around talking to as many people as I can to talk about putting value back in the value proposition. There's many people that don't believe that higher education is worth it. So it's my job to show them not only that it's worth it or tell them, but to give them a way to think about how to make it happen for them and their families. High school graduation requirements have been changed uh, this week. They'll be going into effect. It's been passed by the, uh, the uh, Kentucky Board of Education. Um, are students arriving on campus prepared to do college work? Not all, no. I wish I could say they were. And not just academically, because college is more about, not, it's more about just academics. It's also being culturally, socially, and emotionally prepared to do it. We, we don't have enough arriving on campus. And I just want to say I believe in high standards. I'm glad we're looking at increasing high standards. I'm also anxious to see all the inputs that you have to put in it to reach those high standards. Because what we know, if we're going to close this opportunity gap, uh, no matter for which population we're talking about, we have to have high expectations, high rigor, but we also have to have high input. So, no, we, we know that we're going to have to align ourselves better with P-12, and Dr. Lewis and I uh, have spent a lot of time talking about that. How can we work together in a more systematic way of making that happen. Where is the best point, in your view, uh, to have, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, an intervention uh, and, and to convince uh, young folks that you can do this? This, this here's a path uh, to, to, to go down. You know, the chamber just reduced, I mean, just uh, introduced their uh, roundtable report, and I sat on that business roundtable. And the first pillar they put there is a strong preschool system. Uh, and then the last pillar was really uh, uh, higher education and the workforce and so on. What I believe for us to understand that we're going to be successful in high school, we have to start with a strong preschool system and just move through the pipeline. But we need to be aligning students in the pipeline by the time they get to be in seventh or eighth grade thinking about it. I'm not talking about tracking in that old way. Yep. I'm talking about giving them an idea about where and how they can get to where they need to go and what they have to do to perform to get there. 
I have a feeling your answer to this may be yes, uh, because it, even though it's a, a multi-pronged question, uh, you know, UK is offering more online courses now, so many of our universities are, are reaching out and doing that, private uh, colleges doing that as well. Uh, is it that, or is it the swank dorms and, <laughs> and the, the fancy campuses and, and so forth uh, that will uh, drive more people uh, to, to get education? Yes, on all of those. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> yes. I mean, it depends, right? If you're an adult learner, we need to get more back in. They probably aren't looking at the swank dorms. They're looking at access. They're looking at affordability. They're looking at getting something that they can use their knowledge in a competency way to get it. But if you're an 18-year-old, I have a 19-year-old in college. Uh, but if you're an 18-year-old, you're going to be looking at those things that give you uh, the living. You're, you're only in class about 15% of the time. The rest of the time, you're living in a community. Right. So, yes, it's all of those. What can you tell us about the new offerings, uh, or at least the plan to have offerings, uh, announced by Congressman Hal Rogers mm -hmm. at uh, Somerset Community College, where students apparently will be able to pursue four-year degrees. Mm -hmm. And I know it's a work in progress, apparently. It is a work in progress. First of all, I, I believe anything we can do in that neck of the woods to offer access uh, to our students, I think we should be looking at that. This is going to be about partnerships between our two-year campuses and our four-year campuses. Uh, and uh, I'm pushing that hard myself. But we yet have to define exactly what that looks like there. What I know is that we're going to move down the path uh, of defining it, but in a way that it has long-term sustainability. You're uh, about a month into this uh, new job. Mm -hmm. You're busy. You're, you're telling me you're getting calls uh, all the time. You're trying to, uh, uh, to keep your eye on, uh, on, your, on your goals. Uh, what will have said you had a successful tenure as president of uh, the College of the, the, the Council on Postsecondary Education in Kentucky, uh, if it can be said about your time in this job? Uh, well, several things. First of all, that more people would believe that they have access to a good quality higher education that's affordable. Mm -hmm. uh, that they will have an opportunity to go no matter who they are, and once they get there, they can be more successful. So we would increase degree attainment in, in all areas, but especially those areas that are important to Kentucky. That we will have aligned better our workforce and our, and our education system. That we get employers and industry in on the front end to help us to do it. That we will have done better in thinking about education as a pipeline, all the way from preschool through higher ed. And that, in fact, more than anything else, that we are in a situation whereby that we will have closed the opportunity gaps, the workforce gaps, and that we have enough good people in this state, whether they come in and stay here or we push people in the pipeline from here, that we will have a much longer economic development system that's powerful for Kentucky because of my time in office. Is it going to be difficult to get there? Uh, yeah, of course it is. I mean, but, you know, it's all about, it's like me coming from Clay County as a, as a poor kid, the idea that if you don't work hard, you'll never get there. So it is about working hard and it is about all of us speaking from the same page. All right. Well, our conversation has come full circle. Thank, thank you, you very much for coming. We appreciate it very much. It's always good to see you. Dr. Thompson, thank you. Thank you. Coming back in just a moment, WKYT's investigative reporter Miranda Combs on some of what she's been looking into lately. It's ahead on Kentucky News. Newsmakers. 
Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. WKYT investigative reporter Miranda Combs is always looking into issues, and it's been a busy last few weeks, and she's getting ready for the brand new year. There will be an investigate special that airs on Christmas Day at 6.30 on the CW Lexington. Miranda, this is a special you and photographer Barton Bill uh, build every year. You work on this, mm -hmm. and I know it's, uh, it's really some highlights of what you've been it after. It really is. It's always interesting to look back through the year and then see what kind of topics bubble to the top as what's been the most important. And this year, it's been the health care crisis. You know, it's been Medicaid issues, upsets and drama when it comes to um, drugs and also uh, when it comes to insurance coverage. And I think we have a little preview of, of what's to come. of the house calls. It's coming all back around now. This is 915 Bernie Drive. That's visible from the two-story commercial. I did feel like I needed immediate care, and it's been generation after generation. I feel like I'm a reasonable person who made a decision to seek care. Honey, here come this queen. No job at no. It's just trying to find the workforce that will do this job and do it well. In this case, Michael Heilig. So you got your license back? I know for a fact he's done my hip surgery. It's not over when they're done with the withdrawals and they're no longer taking that drug. Oh, it's beyond, it's disrespectful to everybody. It's amazing how complex it can be, and I can't imagine how overwhelming it must be for a lot of families to deal with. Bart worked so hard on those. There's right. an applause to him for doing that. <laughs> Again, that's 6.30 on Christmas, on Christmas Day. Day, right? Yes. All right, now one of those stories turned into uh, multiple updates. I know you did follow-ups. Uh, insurance carrier Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, people going to the ER and then being surprised uh, when uh, emergency insurance did not cover that emergency. Well, it's actually our medical uh, correspondent, Dr. Ryan Stanton. He uh, brought this to our attention by saying that he was noticing that people coming in the ER were not getting the the coverage they expected to get from coming in from what they thought was an emergency. And we had one case where a woman actually had a, a, an ovary rupture. And if any woman out there has had that, they know that's a very painful situation. Three months later, after she's healed up and left the emergency room, she finds out that Anthem didn't cover her and she had no idea why. And then they started noticing more and more. Now, Anthem's side of it is yes, we have started scaling back on what we're going to cover because we want people to go to the appropriate outlets for the appropriate care. How do you know what's appropriate care, mm -hmm. though, when it comes to an emergency? And so that's something that Dr. Stanton is highly against because he feels like he's the doctor. He's the one that decides whether something yeah. is an emergency or not. It's the old uh, going in for a hangnail, but yet it could be a situation that's very serious. And that is, you're right, Bill, why this has come up, because there are so many what they call in the business frequent flyers, people that show up for, for reasons that absolutely should not be coming to an ER. Um, but this is boiled over into people that actually needed the, the emergency. Uh, the emergency rooms are overcrowded for mm -hmm. so many reasons mm -hmm. now. There's something called community paramedicine that is uh, trying to get after this. And this is a phrase you're going to start hearing a lot more of across the state, I think. It's happening right now in Lexington, although their grant is about to run out and they're going to need more funding to continue this. But it's very interesting, and the idea is, is that paramedics, when they're out on the streets and have time, they stop by patients' homes that they see a lot that they come and pick up and they check on them, take their blood pressure, heart monitors, things like that to avoid them having to go to the emergency room again. These are the people that go over and over and over again. And what they found is a lot of times these people don't need an ER because when you go to an ER, an ER doctor is there to fix an emergency. These people need long-term care that's going to keep them 
well into the future. And so if, if these uh, paramedics are able to come in and check on them, they can obviously sometimes spot the actual problem and get them to the right doctor instead of using up uh, the taxpayer dollars in these, uh, these ambulances. A big part of our healthcare picture obviously is our population. We are aging as a mm -hmm. country, certainly a lot of folks now over 65. By 2050, an estimated 27 million people will need some kind of long-term care. Uh, and that's putting a lot of pressure on out there, isn't it? It's putting a lot of pressure on uh, long-term care facilities, particularly CNAs and that's certified nursing assistants. They are in high demand and badly needed right now. Those are the uh, workers that are right under a, a nurse in the nursing home. They do do a lot of the dirty work and a lot of the stuff that nobody wants to get into, but it's also a very special job. And we did a very special story on that about how it takes a caring heart and you can't just throw random people into that position either because then you get the bad press. So um, it's one of those jobs that's desperately needed and it's going to be needed more and more as time goes on as more and more people are having to choose to put a parent or a loved one into long-term care. I know uh, one of your stories has to do with uh, an interesting revelation about police PTSD. It's something that police have avoided, I think, for a long time, that topic. But the things that they're seeing um, are ending up turning them into mental health disasters by the time they retire or even before that. So the idea is, is to start teaching them early on the signs of mental health and, and how they need to get help when they're having post-traumatic problems. Um, because police are looked at as the tough guys and they're not supposed to be scared of anything. They walk into the danger, but that danger sticks around with them and they need to cope with it. And this is a big push by uh, the Department of Criminal Justice training um, through the Justice Cabinet that they're trying to make uh, more people go to classes and in therapy to get ahead of this. You uh, had some feedback about this when you looked into fake service dogs. <laughs> a lot of feedback, yeah. So, so apparently, and this was brought to our attention because from viewers, because a lot of times people know that um, people have a service dog vest on their dog, but their dog's not really acting like a service dog. You see them on planes and in malls and stores. Um, so we started looking into it, and sure enough, we were able to go on Amazon.com and buy one for $24.95 and put it on my dog if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, that's how easy it was. But you don't realize the drama um, and problems that cause for actual people who need these service dogs. These service dogs are trained for years. They're very expensive. And a lot of times when they're put in situations that are around fake service dogs, it can actually retire that real service dog for the rest of that dog's life because of uh, they can't be around dogs that are not acting appropriately. Yeah, a lot of interesting stories. Again, your special will run on uh, Christmas Day at 6.30 on the CW Lexington. Mm -hmm. Miranda, thanks so much uh, for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Updating us on what you're up to. I know you, you look for a busy year ahead. Yeah, I hope so. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning, and we hope you make it a good week ahead.